please find your place again if you've lost it in the 139th Psalm. Some consider Mark Twain the greatest literary figure in American history in the 19th century. Listen to what he said. He said, deep down in his heart, no man much respects himself. I would suggest that probably was an autobiographical statement. That's the way he viewed himself. This man who was world-renowned, this man who influenced literally millions of people, had a lack of respect for himself deep down in his heart. If we could find ourselves in the Children's Museum in Denver, Colorado today, as we would work our way, we would come to that area which has to do with self-esteem. And in that area, we would find an exhibit that focused on Michael Jordan. And we would read this quotation. It goes as follows. I wish I could win more. How in the world could a man of his capability wish more in the area of accomplishment? What would drive him to want to win more? Well, it's what drives all of us to one degree or another at some point in our lives. And that is that we believe, we have bought the world's viewpoint, that one is measured by how intelligent one is, or how strong one is, or beautiful one is, or how wealthy one is. God addresses that through the prophet Jeremiah in the ninth chapter. When he says, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. And let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this. That he understands and knows me. Why would God say such a thing? Is God selfish? Is God self-centered? Is God all about himself? Quite to the contrary. Our God is a giving God. Our God is a wise God who understands that we, if we insist to buy the lie of the world, that we can only find a place of self-worth by our achievement in whatever area we might seek to achieve, He understands that that is a dead end. And that He created us For one purpose, the Bible tells us what that purpose is in the book of Isaiah 43, verse 7, to bring glory to Him. If we know God, then we're ready to bring glory to Him. And as a beautiful byproduct of our knowledge of God, we are able to be at peace with who we are. People who are created the first time by God, and most of us here probably know God already, people who having come to know God through Jesus Christ, we are people who can be at peace too, because our focus is on Him and not upon ourselves. Our hearts are oriented toward knowing Him and secondarily making Him known. It's important that we know God. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that we may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only definition which Jesus gives of eternal life boils down to our knowing Him and knowing the Father 
through him. I might say that even as important as it is for me and you to know God, it's even more important that he know us. You may remember in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says on that day, speaking about the day of judgment, when we stand before God, he said, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say in response to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And then those people who are given that kind of dismissal by Jesus will say, didn't we prophesy in your name? We preached eloquently in your name. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Jesus takes no exception with those statements. But it does not move him to change his mind. It's important that we know God. It's unfortunate if you have yet to come to know him. But today could be the day that you transition from a place of spiritual ignorance to a place of spiritual life. You'll come to know him because he has sought you out. And he's revealed himself to you. And he's invited you to come into his family so that you could be known by him as his child. This great psalm by David. David was a man of incredible accomplishment. He was a warrior poet. It's rare that warriors are poets. It's rare even more so when poets are warriors. But in his person, he was a great warrior and at the same time a great artist. He was a musician. His playing of the harp was used to soothe the troubled mind of King Saul. He was a great man as a leader, as a king, David. But I would suggest to you today, as we look at this psalm, that he was a man who was acquainted, was struggling for achievement to validate himself, so that he could be a man who reached in his own mind, and especially in the world's eyes, a place of significance. But he learned the secret that hopefully we will all grasp today. And if we grasped it once before, we will take hold of it in a new way today. That is, that the secret to self-acceptance and self-esteem is not in better education or a better job or a better marriage. It's to be found in knowing God. Do you wrestle with self-acceptance? Well, if you're honest, you do and have. Some of you are actually more than just wrestlers with self-acceptance. You've already been pinned to the mat as a result of your low self-image. Well, I've got good news for you today. The Word of God has great encouragement based upon great truth about who God is and what that means for those who know Him. So let's dive in and look at what David says about two of the attributes of God. Attributes is just a big word for traits or characteristics. There were many more which David could have chosen. If you read his Psalms, he talks about other attributes of God besides the two which he singles out here. Scholars believe that of all the traits of God, the most important is what is known as God's immutability. And that simply means 
God does not change. He says as much in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. That's good news for us. We're all in a state of flux. We're all in a state of change. Some of us change in the course of an hour in our moods. But God is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we want to know someone like that. Not only so we can imitate Him, but so we can draw off of His life and so He can bring that kind of stability to us. Jesus Christ, when we see Him in Scripture, there is never a moment when He appears to be uneasy with Himself. He is not in any way daunted when He is brought before the representative of Rome and Caesar, Pontius Pilate. He's in control of that scene, which is described so well in John's Gospel, the 19th chapter. He's the one who is in charge. When he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the temple police, the people who work for the Sadducees and the high priest, he is not bugged by that. He is the picture of peace. He is calm because he knows who he is. And he wants you to know who he is also. And in knowing who he is, you will come to know who you are. And it will change your life irrevocably. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. The trait that David thinks about in relationship to God is the trait of omniscience, which simply means God knows everything. He's the only being in the universe who knows it all. He begins in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The word which translated is translated searched here is a word which was used in David's day of someone taking a shovel-like instrument and digging into the dirt, turning the sod over to see what lay underneath the sod. I remember as a little boy, one of the pastimes in my neighborhood, we had a neighborhood filled with boys, and we boys always ganged together, and we were looking for all kinds of things, especially in the summer, to fascinate us. Our curiosity was large at that time. And one of the things we would do, we would find rocks, large rocks, some which had been formed into stepping stones, and we loved to turn them over. Did any of you boys ever do that? You men, I guess I should say. Did you ever do that? You see all those creepy, crawly things under there. It was just awesome, wasn't it? Wriggling earthworms and centipedes. Maybe even a little snake. We would find little garter snakes sometimes under there. Awesome. We were curious, weren't we? Well, do you know God has that sort of curiosity about you and me? We know He's all-knowing. But He's not just interested in us in a passing way. Look at what David writes about him in the second part of verse 3. And you are intimately acquainted with all our ways. He wants to know everything there is about you and me. His interest is not the detached interest that a scientist looking at a piece of protoplasm under a microscope might have about that piece of tissue or material. It is an intimate interest. And he's knowledgeable about what is on our outside being. The things that we let other people see about us. Look at verse 2. You 
know when I sit down and when I rise. Now glance down the page to verse 3. You scrutinize my path in my lying down. The Lord knows everything about my external behavior. He knows every move I make before I make such a move. And then He knows those things that are not visible to your eye in my life. And those things in your life which are invisible, that are not visible to others. You know, there are things in my life that I'm glad nobody else knows besides the Lord. Not that I'm eager to secret myself away and not reveal myself to other people. But because there are sometimes these thoughts that are not good thoughts in my head. And the Lord knows those. Look at what He says in the second part of verse 2. You understand my thought from afar. The word thought means intention. You know my attention. The phrase from afar means long before it happens. It doesn't suggest geographical distance. It has to do with temporal distance. Before I think anything, the Lord knows it already. That's amazing, isn't it? Look at verse 4. Even... Before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. The Lord knows everything I do. I can do nothing that He does not know. He knows everything I think, and consequently everything which I say. He knows all of that, even before it happens. He's omniscient. Now that could be cause for great alarm. It could scare the socks off of us. If we didn't know God and know more about Him, David knew the Lord. And look at the response that David had. Remembering that the Lord had searched him. And he, according to verse 1, known him. And the word which is translated known is a word which means know by personal involvement and experience. It's the word which is adopted by Moses to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve as a married couple in their conjugal relationship, which produced their son. And what this says is, he's, as I've already mentioned in the Scripture teaches, he's intimately interested in all our ways. Look at verse 5. You have enclosed me behind and before. Some of the translations say, and it's a good translation I might add, you have hemmed me in. It's like he's sort of corralling us is what it sounds like. But that's really not the idea. As we see in the next verse, and laid your hand upon me. This particular year, as I'm reading my Bible devotionally, not to get a message, but just reading it devotionally for my relationship building with the Lord, to hear from the Lord, to get to know Him more. I have been looking and marking times that the phrase, The hand of God or the right hand of God shows up. It is phenomenal how often. And it's always in a positive way. In Exodus 15, 6, the Bible says about the right hand of God. The right hand of God, O Lord, your right hand is majestic in power. That's encouraging, isn't it? David knew that. He was in the hand of God and he was experiencing the protective power of God. God could have crushed him in a nanosecond, but he didn't do it. 
Because He chose him to be His child. And He loved him as a result. And being in the hand of God is the safest place. And it's really actually the only place of safety in the universe. Nobody can touch you if you're in the hand of God. You are in a place of ultimate safety in the hand of the Lord. And here was David thinking about all the things he had said, all the thoughts that he had had, all the things which he had done in secret, knowing that God knew all that, and instead of petrifying him, it brought him to a place of celebrating. Look at verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. God cares for you if you are His child. And you are His child if and only if you have come to Him through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He who has seen Me has seen the Father. How do we know the Lord? We know the Lord through Jesus. Entrusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. He cares for Me. Some time ago I read a story set in rural America in the Southland during the Great Depression of the 1930s. It's a story about a family. The father was a sharecropper. He and his wife had many children. They eked out an existence as they tried to scratch out a crop on the land that belonged to someone else, hoping that they could gather enough food to feed their family and have a little left over to see them through the winter. This was the case year after year. They had no mirror in their home. And it was the desire of the woman of the house to have a mirror so that she could fix herself up and look good for her husband. And so the family scrimped and saved. They got enough money they could order by Sears and Roebuck a mirror. Days passed, weeks passed. Every time the mail would come in that area, which was not every day, they would all run out to the road and ask the mailman if there was a package. There was none. Finally, the package arrived. And all the family members gathered around in their little house as the mother took the package and opened it, and there was the mirror. She began by looking at herself. She was admiring her own reflection in the mirror. And then, starting with the oldest to the youngest, began to pass it down the line. One of the children, his name was Willie, had suffered as a younger child an accident. He was kicked in the face by a mule. Now, of course, there was no doctor to attend to him. There was no plastic surgeon available to repair the disfigurement caused by this accident. He had never seen his reflection before. And the mirror came to him, and he picked up the mirror, and he looked at himself. He was shocked. He was horrified, actually, at his reflection. He dropped it slowly down, and then he said, Mama, did you know I look like this? And she smiled, the kind of smile that only a loving mother can have for a child. She says, Oh, yes, Willie. I've known you've looked like that ever since you were kicked by that mule. You may remember it back when you were a little boy. And then he said, and Mama, do you love me? She says, Willie, I love you because you're mine, not because of the way you look. 
Do you know all of us have some form of disfigurement in our persons? The Lord knows that. It has not escaped His notice. It was under His sovereignty. And He loves us. And you are His. And when you know Him, you're able to let Him embrace you. And you're able to enjoy a relationship where the God of the universe shows His love to you. He cares for you immeasurably. So, it's important. I think you would agree that we understand who God is. He's all-knowing. And He knows everything about us and still loves us and protects us. Here's the next thing that David takes us to in this passage. Not only is God omniscient or all-knowing, God is also omnipresent or everywhere we go. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. There's the hand appearing. And your right hand will lay hold of me. We could go, for instance, to Psalm 89.13 or to Psalm 98.1 or to Psalm 118.16 or to Isaiah 41.10. Just a few places where the right hand of God is mentioned always positively. And here again we see the right hand of God laying hold of David. This is not as if David is trying to run away from God like Jonah was. When he went the opposite way God had told him to, and God found him and brought him back. It's nothing like that at all. The right hand is a place of security, as we've seen. Jesus says, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. I and the Father are one, he said. We are in concert with each other, working with each other to protect those whom we have love for who know us and whom we know. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, Lord. The word which is translated will overwhelm in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, literally translates the Hebrew word which means bruise. Surely the darkness will bruise me. What's that all about? Have you ever had an experience of darkness where you felt bruised by the darkness? I'm not talking about physical darkness now. I'm talking about psychological darkness. Have you ever been depressed? Some of you have. Some of you are. Well, look. This truth about the Lord, that He's ever-present in His children's lives, is critically important for overcoming when we're low, when we're down. He's there. This is reminiscent of what had happened in the children of Israel's experience when they were being dislodged from the grip of Pharaoh in Egypt after over 400 years of enslavement. And the ninth of the ten plagues which God used to dislodge them and set them free was 
a darkness which came over the face of the land of Egypt, a darkness which could be felt. As I thought about that, I see a relationship between what happened in the ninth plague and what we see David speaking of hundreds of years later. Here's what the Scripture says about that plague in the tenth chapter of Exodus. It talks about how this darkness did indeed come over all the households of Egypt. And the result was they could not see one another and they could not move from the houses where they lived. Is that a picture of depression? If you've been depressed, you understand. You can't see anybody else. You're fixed on yourself and your problem. It's part of the disease, isn't it? And then secondly, you can't get up and go. If we were to take testimonies this morning and people were being vulnerable, real, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you have wakened one morning and you just didn't get out of bed? It was not because you were tired, you were depressed. You were pinned to the mattress by your depression. Well, that's a picture. But here's what's neat about this story. In that chapter 10 of Exodus, the Bible says, but in the... Dwellings of the sons of Israel, there was light. Why was there light there? It's because God was with them. The Bible says in the book of 1 John chapter 1, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. The Lord's with you. This is the uniform Truth of the Bible. The Lord is with you. Do not fear, God says through Isaiah the prophet. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. God brings light. He is light. And He's come to indwell us. If we know Him, He lives in us. And we have light. Remember this. The next time you feel down, go to this passage of Scripture. Say, Lord, I believe what you say. The darkness is bruising me, and the light around me is night. But even the darkness is not dark to you, O Lord, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, Lord. He's with us. Any situation you find yourself in, the Lord is with you. If you know Him, He says, I am near to you in your trouble. Amazing, isn't it? God does care for us. Listen to what Randy Alcorn wrote in his book. He says, God has seen us at our worst and still loves us. No skeletons will fall out of our closets in heaven. God won't say, if I had known that about you, I wouldn't have let you in. He knows everything about you, friend. Everything. You have to come to Him in humility and acknowledge that you need Him. You're a sinner. And that is all He wants to hear from you. And saying, Lord, I want to be your child. He'll say, all right, come on in. Give your life to me and come on in. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God has a far tighter grip on you and me than we have on Him. He will not let us go. Now, when 
we come to know God, attitudes change. Instead of trying to fake it, or trying to impress other people, or even impress God, trying to build up points with God so that we might make it into heaven, when we know His love for us and that He chooses us, He came looking for us in the person of Jesus Christ, and He has given us knowledge of Himself, and consequently we have eternal life if we have trusted in Him for it, and not in ourselves, not in our works. Then attitude changes occur. We see this in David. Look at verse 14. We're going to skip 13 and come back to it. Look at what he says. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow. This dude was not lacking self-esteem, was he? He's like a rooster. You know, the cock of the walk, wasn't he? Look at him, man. He just... But that's not quite true. Look at what he goes on to say. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. He was simply stating what is true, that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And now let's look at what that meant. Look at verse 13. He was fearfully and wonderfully made in his temperament. Verse 13, for you did form my inward parts. The word translated inward parts is the word kidneys in Hebrew. And that reflects what the Hebrew mind thought about where the seat of the emotions are. They're in the kidneys. So, God formed you temperamentally. There are people here today who are very outgoing and wish you could put a lid on it every once in a while. Right? Anybody like that? We hope you learn soon. All right? And then there are people who are just painfully shy. And they so wish that they could be a little more outgoing. Now look. Proper self-esteem will help you move in a good direction from one extreme to a Christ-likeness. Who knew when it was proper to be outgoing and who knew when it was proper to be shy and retiring? But this is what's important for you and me to understand. When the genetic code was punched in, when your father and mother contributed to the formation of one cell that eventuated in trillions of cells before you came out of your mother's womb. The good news is that that code was his idea. If you're introverted, it was God's idea. If you're extroverted, it was God's idea. God does not take the blame for distortions in our temperament. They're the result of our own selfishness. The flesh is what the Bible calls it. We can't blame him for misbehavior, the Bible's real clear about what's like Christ and what's not like Christ in terms of behavior. But your basic temperament was given to you. God had a plan in mind for you psychologically. Temperamentally, David acknowledges this. And he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He begins to reflect on his temperament. He was an interesting blend, David was. Sometimes he's sort of brooding. Most of the time he's more hard-charging outgoing. But he was a beautiful mixture because that's the way the Lord formed him. Also physically, look at what he says in the last sentence of verse 13. You wove me in my mother's womb. Now glance down to 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. This is talking about the formation of the child in the uterus. And skillfully wrought, the word translated skillfully wrought is a word which literally means embroidered. 
That speaks of the exquisiteness of God's handiwork in your physical formation in the depths of the earth. We all look different on the outside. But on the inside, we're essentially the same. And God did all that, both external and internal. Has anyone here wished you were a little taller or a little shorter? I can't imagine wishing I were shorter. Not because I'm that short. I'm just a little above average in height. But I remember I so wanted to be six feet tall. And I would measure about every six hours when I was a teenager. (laughs) I'd measure and I, I got to 5'11", I think I'm going to make it. My grandfather on my mother's side is 6'4", my father is 6'1". I'm going to make it. I never made it. <laughs> I made it to 5'11 and a half, and I was disappointed. I never made it. And I actually would lie to people. they say, how tall are you? I'm six feet tall. <laughs> Under my breath, I said, with shoes on. You know? Now I'm not even 5'11 and a half. I'm, not, I'm afraid to measure now. I wanted to measure then. I don't even want to measure. I'm shrinking away. It's unbelievable. But probably you're like that. Or have been about something physical. Some of you wish you had different color hair, different texture hair. Some say, I just wish I had some hair. I'm, not, I'm beginning to understand that myself, you know. Well, you know, the Lord made you that way. Revel in your hair. If it's too curly, I can't understand these women who have curly hair and they want to spend three hours a day straightening it out. It is beautiful. Curly hair is awesome. It's beautiful. Save yourself some time, ladies. Let's look on. Not only... Was he fearfully and wonderfully made, but he had insight into why he was made. Look at the last part of verse 16. And in your book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. When I woke up this morning, I knew that this day had my name on it. Not because it's Sunday and I'm a preacher. No. It's because... I am a child of God. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And there is detail every day. This does wonders for you and me if we understand it and we know who has written that day out for us. Remember what God said to Jeremiah before he'd ever preached a sermon or written a word in what is the longest book in the Bible? I know there are books which have more chapters, has more words than any other book in the Bible, the prophet Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And by implication, when we put it together with this, everything was written out. Look, God has something for you and me to do every day of our lives. What a joy to have that kind of relationship and to have that kind of purpose. Quit whining about what you don't have in terms of opportunity and begin to ask God, what do you have for me today? How would you use me today? And believe me, He will certainly do that. Don't resist being who you are. Don't resist doing what God created for you to do. I read another story that was set 
in the Great Depression about a man who was a high-profile man in the town in which he lived. It was a city, actually. It was large enough to have a zoo. He was a man who had quickly run out of all material funds. And he was desperate for work. He couldn't find work anywhere. He was willing to do any kind of menial work. This was a professional. He goes to a friend of his who had been a client of his. He was the president of the bank there in the town. And he had gone to that man who was a client of his who was the manager of the zoo. And he said, do you have something I can do here at the zoo? He said, no, I don't. He said, all of the jobs are taken. He said, I'm sorry. And the man turned around and was walking out the door. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, come back. He said, our gorilla died last week. And we have made an order for another gorilla, but it's going to take a month or so for us to receive it. And the gorilla is the most popular of all the animals. And if you would be willing to dress up like a gorilla, and we can show you a few tricks you can do in the cage, it would, it would be something we'd be able to pay you for. He said, well, I've got to go home and talk to my wife about it. And he went home and she said, well, nobody will know it's you. You'll be in a suit and all that, and it won't embarrass you or the us. So go ahead and do it. So he arrived early to the zoo. The person in charge of the gorilla's cage came and had this suit. He got into it and the person took him to the cage and showed him the trapeze that was there and some of the things he could do to entertain the people when they arrived. And it was next to the lion's cage. There was an opening at the top, oh, maybe three or four feet, something like that. And so he began to try out the trapeze and he was enjoying it. And the people showed up and he really enjoyed it because they would do and ah, they didn't know that he was not a gorilla. And he was getting a little too big for his gorilla suit, and he swings over, he loses grip, and before he knows it, he's tumbled over into the lion's cage. And the lion roars and starts rushing to him. He begins to scream bloody murder. And then all of a sudden, the lion gets up to him. He said, buddy, you better shut up or both of us are going to lose our job. <laughs> okay. You must not resist being who you are. God created you. And He has something for you to do that nobody else can do. Viktor Frankl, a man who endured incredible suffering. He was in Auschwitz for several years. And he was... A psychiatrist, Jewish psychiatrist, he survived. And in writing about that experience in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, this is what he writes. Everyone has his own specific vocation and mission in life. Therein, he can, thereby, rather, he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated. Thus, everyone's task is as unique as is his specific opportunity to implement it. Understand, God puts you where He puts you. He gave you what He has given you in terms of skills, 
He wants to use you there. Do not resist being who you are or doing what He has called you to do. Look at verses 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts toward me would be a better translation, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. What's he saying? Lord, you think about me and your thoughts are immeasurable. One of the places I love to go for a vacation is the beach. It's a toss-up for me between the mountains and the beach. I love them both. The one thing I do hate about the beach is the sand, right? You go out and you're in the surf and you come in and you got sand all over you. You get under the shower outside the hotel or where you're staying and you just try to wash all that stuff off. Then you get inside and you begin to disrobe and you take your bathing suit off and guess what it's full of? Sand, right? You think you got it all off before you get in. It's all over the place you're staying. Well, the thoughts of the Lord toward you and me are measureless. They're greater than the sand of the sea. Another picture of God's interest in us. And then, as David moves from a place of acknowledging self-acceptance based upon his understanding that God is intimately interested in him and that God is with him in every situation in which he finds himself, And he must not resist being who he is and doing what God has created him to do. He comes to a place of being able to be vulnerable. He comes to a place of self-disclosure. You know what hinders a lot of people who might come to Christ from coming to Christ? It's a lack of transparency on our part as followers. We don't have to spill all of our guts out to the Lord. But we need to be real. We need to let people know people who follow Jesus hurt too. But we have the resource that's never ending living in us in the person of the Spirit of God who enables us to not just sort of tough it out, grit our teeth and bear it, but to really thrive in the middle of trouble because we're trusting Him. After all, He's with us. He's going to help us through. David becomes very vulnerable in verses 19 through 22. You'll see it as I read it. It needs little explanation. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. You have be- they have become my enemies." Now, that doesn't sound a lot like Jesus, does it? Remember when Jesus had sent out his apostles in pairs, and the brothers James and John, they were known as the sons of thunder. They had gone to a Samaritan village. They had been rejected. They rejected the message that Jesus is the Messiah. So they come back along with the other ten apostles reporting what had happened, and they tell about the rejection of the message of Christ, the gospel in their village. And they say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven, Lord? He said, you don't understand. No, 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 no. Not at all. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the message of Christ. So David's not like Christ here. But he's being real, isn't he? Jesus is always real. 
Every time we meet him, he's real, he's real, he's real. No hint of hypocrisy in Jesus. What you saw, only time in history that's been true. What you saw is what you got. Jesus is the prototypical human being. There is no one like him in his humanity. Of course, he's deity as well. But he was real in his humanity, for sure. But then he kind of catches himself, I believe. The Spirit of God speaks to him, I believe. I'm talking about David now. Verses 23 and 24. And he says this memorable prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Not all these enemies, Lord. Please deal with me. He gets the picture. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. You and I need to go to the Lord with the possibility that we're messed up more than the people we think are messed up who are our enemies. Take a good look at yourself. And you can afford to do that. In fact, you can stand it. Some of us, we just can't stand to take an honest look at ourselves because we're afraid of what we will find inside. But remember, God knows it all anyway. And He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light to be His children To love you. And He wants you to get rid of those things which are hindering you. And the means by which He does that, His Spirit searches us and knows us. And those things come to the surface of our consciousness. And we do what we are supposed to do with them. We confess them and we put them behind us and ask the Lord for forgiveness and ask God to empower us not to go there anymore to be real. Jesus came to make God known to us. And He is the embodiment of life. And He wants that life for you and for me. Would you bow your head? Have you received Jesus in your life? Have you really let Him in? Have you listened to Him as He's spoken to you, calling you out of a a life of self-dependence to a life of Christ-centeredness? Has you done that in your life? Would you dare, if you haven't done that, would you dare this morning, in the quietness of your heart, just to say, Lord, I'm tired of fighting this fight in my own strength. I'm tired of keeping up fronts. Lord, I want to be real with You so I can be real with other people. Please, Lord, deliver me from my low self-acceptance and self-esteem because of who You are. Help me, Lord, to know that my identity is in You. Thank You, Lord. If you have known the Lord before and you've forgotten these things, if you ever knew them to begin with that we've looked at today, would you simply say, Lord, I'm here to tell you, I want to be real with You and real with others. And Lord, I'd like to be useful to You. Would you use me, Lord, 
Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a great week.